0: Welcome to the 202030 podcast. It's our third episode on our second season. I'm Magdalena, and I'm sitting in the studio together with Max. Today we have four guests of our summit.
1: Yes, and those four people um, will be talking about kind of three case studies from their projects that all work towards a new status quo for relationships in our beloved fashion industry. The first voice um, comes from Marion Röttges from Remai, one of these really well-established organic cotton traders and sourcing companies with their daughter companies in Tanzania and in India. Then we will listen to Hasna Kurde of Save Your Wardrobe and also her cultural background, which inspired her startup that um, is one of these really hopeful um, solution providers, I think, to uh, kickstart us into a more circular economy. And then last but seriously not least, it's the interview between Selena Perez of Celine Textiles and Annika Wohlert of B-Lab Germany.
0: Thank you, Max. I mean, while I was listening to Marion Röttgers at the summit, um, she was talking a lot about meaningful relationships. And actually, I was asking myself, what is a meaningful relationship in like a business context?
1: Yeah, that's, I think, I mean, we talk about that a lot huh? meaning and how to attach meaning to all these things we talk about in sustainability. Because without the meaning, who will ever really care about it? You, we can scare away people with like bad news, but to really go into a positive dynamic, there needs to be meaning attached to things. And I think meaningful relationship means. It is not just that business relationship. There must be more attached to it. There must be a cultural element of of interest for each other. An idea that you want to understand what the other person or the the other company is coming from. And if there's kind of a, a common ground and a common understanding, maybe especially for the future.
0: Yeah, and I think sometimes also in a business context, we forget that we are working with people and that we are actually people ourselves. So we are actually talking as people to each other. And I think this is maybe one of the most important changes in an understanding of business relationships.
1: Yeah, maybe one thing I I just think of spontaneously what could define a meaningful relationship. It can't be just defined by numbers.
0: No, that's true. I mean, it's uh, people have needs, people have people's needs and they have emotions. And I think one of the most important things, and I, I think I stated it maybe last episode already, it's about empathy also, also in a working relationship.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, in these times, obviously to a certain degree, everybody is just for themselves. But I mean, we humans, we don't come from there. We are kind of group animals. We need each other to develop, to strive. And in this sense, again, this meaning comes from, from like understanding each other. And I think this is like yeah what we're working on every day in a way.
0: Talking about people's needs, I think we need to listen to our guests now. Marion starts with her presentation on a new corporate culture developing meaningful relationships. Followed by Annika Wollert and Selina who are interviewed by Max, my dear business partner on Regenerative Corporate Citizenship Beyond CSR those are followed by Hasna Kurda's interview looking towards a future of equity and ecology
2: Thank you all of you and thank you also for this beautiful title which you've given me uh, for this input the development of meaningful relationships so Actually I could not describe it in a better way, what is the goal of REMAI, and what is also our understanding of uh, doing business in textile and in our case especially in organic cotton textiles. So I would like to give you a short introduction about REMAI, and I would like to start a video which brings you at the starting point of our meaningful relationships. So um, you call it here, or we call it here a new corporate culture, but actually REMAI is not new. So our company is turning 40 years this year. And when REMAI started as a cotton and yarn trading company in the uh, 80s, um, there was already this um, development in agriculture to trying to maximize the yields and also trying to shift those boundaries in agriculture. At that time, the term organic cotton we are working today did not even exist. And today, 40 years later, the importance of a transparent organic cotton supply cannot be underestimated. So the idea of meaningful relationships in this context of organic cotton textile has always been in the core of our purpose since this very beginning. So Remer's reason today for being is to integrate farmers, to integrate industrial partners and also to integrate our B2B partners into a complex textile supply chain from fibre to fashion but also into an economic system. So today 99% of global cotton is conventional it's only one percent of cotton which is organic and which means to me that still 99 percent of cotton in the world goes wrong and the good news is there's a great growth potential for this good solution organic cotton and the question who made my cotton is elemental and should be much more focused in the fashion industry why Normally, or you would say in conventional business models, um, cotton farmers, they do not have, they are not part of the supply chain. They do not have any access to the market. They do not participate in added value, which is created from fiber to the ready textile. But on the other hand, they have to carry the highest risk in this game. So... Without a direct contact to farmers and also without meaningful relationships to farmers, um, it is impossible from my point of view today to secure integrity in cotton supply. So actually regenerative business starts with the business model itself. Organizational development is key in those, um, regenerative business models. So at REMI, we invest into organizational development of our, first of all, of our own organization. Actually, there are three REMAIs. There's a REMI in Switzerland. There is a REMI in India and there is a REMI in Tanzania. So we focus on farmers. There are around 5,000 smallholder farmers we work with. We give them commitment. We give them a purchasing guarantee, we pay them premium and actually we plan years in advance with them. Beyond the farmers, we have developed over the last 25 years a complete textile supply chain. Today we work with 29 industrial units from fiber to fashion and we also include the buyers of our B2B partners and we try to encourage those decision makers in retail to also establish meaningful and reliable relationships. The textile supply chain of, a, of an organic cotton t-shirt is quite complex. So we are convinced that meaningful partnerships can start when business models truly move to integrate people in that supply chain and also in their decisions. So if you see these running icons and this bunch of processes we have to deal with from fibre to fashion. You get an idea of this fear of responsibility we also have to face. And you can imagine that it forces us in our operation to pre-think and to pre-act long in advance in our planning and also in our operation. And yes, on this long way from fibre to fashion, there are quite a lot of uh, conflict conflicts of interests. I would give you two examples. There is a conflict of timeline. So if you start in the supply chain with the farmers, we have to plan five years in advance with farmers. uh, It takes three years actually to convert a conventional field into an organic field. With the supply chain partners in industry, we also plan years in advance. We have to build up capacities, we have to uh, use capacities, and we also have to build up solutions in this transparent supply chain. With the buyers on the end of the supply chain, partly we can only plan from season to season because this is how fashion works. And there's also also a conflict in pricing. Farmers at the very start of the supply chain, they need high cotton prices. They need high premium to be paid to feed their families. And cotton is a cash crop for these farmers, you know, they they grow it to sell it. They have no own use for this fiber. On the other hand of the supply chain, textile buyers are happy when the cotton price crumbles down, when the New York cotton index is low and when it provides a favorable opportunity for sourcing. So what to do? REMA's vision, we call it all-holder value. We The goal of REMA is to include farmers, to include supply chain partners and the decision makers not only in the supply chain but also in our decisions and um, we are convinced that only business relationships that take into account the need to consider all the stakeholders in the supply chain will also enable meaningful solutions which we really need. So business must start or must integrate people only though only so business can become part of the solution I believe. Transparency is key also for us. So um, every organic cotton textile we deliver to our B2B partners is fully traceable. We produce around 1 million um, traceable organic cotton textiles. We do private label ranges for retailers and brands who want to have this responsibility shared with us for for the raw material. And we have developed over the last um, 15 years a um, traceability tool. It's called My Trace by Remi. Each of these 1 million ready-made textile uh, garments, T-shirts, carries a QR code in the in the side seam. <clears throat> You can scan it, and um, it, it it discloses the complete way from seed over fiber spinning, all the different stages you need. And we offer this traceability tool actually since 15 years already. But to us, it's not about the digital solution only. What I see most is that real traceability learns us about the reality of those dots which we connect. So actually, there are humans behind these dots, there are entrepreneurs behind these dots, and there are also... Um, stakeholders who want to we would like to share our our visions and our aims and altogether this is the the goal of us we want to drive this systematic transformation in organic cotton textiles so the fact that remi we know all our farmers and all our industry partners we work with is essential, but it's also standard. It's normal to us. So actually, I personally could not imagine how we could work without these meaningful relationships. And the development of a supply chain, the way we do it, it costs a lot of money. That's clear. But we don't see it as a mere cost block in our idea. It is a necessary invest, but it's also a great opportunity for RemI. Uh, and also for our b2b retailers brands and business partners to develop solutions together so we have a platform in this uh, in this sphere from these 5000 farmers 29 industrial partners where we can just which we can just use to to give in all questions we have and uh, trying to establish uh, together solutions for organic cotton textiles So I'm convinced what makes organizations resilient and also allows good practices are meaningful relationships. And for me, they are characterized with respect, but also with goodwill from time to time. They can build alliances and they can also build solutions that really change the system for traceable organic cotton textiles. And this is what we keep on trying and do also the next decades
0: probably. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Marion. We actually have uh, a couple of minutes for Q&A, so don't be shy. Anyone? Questions?
3: Can you tell us why only 1% of cotton is organic cotton? Is it price or is it
2: due to limited supply? i absolutely the wrong person to ask because we are into this 1%. I think it's... Um, yeah, it might be the price, but you can imagine uh, it's just a very small share in the in the final price. From my point of view, it's the missing commitment. So farmers, they are ready to grow organic cotton, but it is, it is difficult to grow organic cotton. And if you don't have a uh, commitment on the other side that you can plan as an entrepreneur, as a farmer... Um, it might be difficult to, to stay on this way so I don't know I would also l- I would also like to get an answer to this and um, why is it so difficult to, and turn the question why is it so difficult to turn these 99 percent of conventional cotton?
0: Okay we actually have a
4: couple of questions all right um, here in the front.
3: Yes I'm very curious to hear around traceability you've been doing it for a very long time so what are the main challenges you have faced um, from when you started 15 years ago to today in terms of being able to provide that good traceability from farmers all the way to consumers?
2: So the, the challenge actually for us was not in, in, in the traceability itself. So it's, you know, we work completely vice versa to the sector. So we work from fiber to fashion. We started as a company from the fiber trading and we have developed step by step the next industrial steps which are needed to create a t-shirt. So we had this traceability from the very beginning. I would say the biggest challenge for us is to, um, to convince and explain how Important it is to have traceability and also to engage um, decision makers in the purchasing responsibility to understand what traceability can provide to you if you want to create solutions and what an asset it is to have a transparent um, supply
5: chain. Right. Last question, <laughs> Here you go.: Hi. Thank you for your presentation. It was really. Really aligned with, I think, where we all want to be heading with transparency and traceability. I have a question about the actual working with the supply chain. So you work with the farm and then the brand is then able to trace it through all of the manufacturing processes. Um, are you working? Does each phase then send to the next phase? Phase, the QR code and they track that information? Or are you guys directly working throughout the entire supply chain? I'm kind of curious just about the process.
2: So it's, um, it's, it's different. Partly we work directly with the farmers. We work directly with gening spinning. We work directly with um, fabric making. Our um, tier one suppliers working directly, but we are feeding supply chain with our uh, material. And yes, we give this QR code and this coding um, from input, from output to input, output to input. And this is why we never lose track of our own, um, of our own fiber and uh, intermediate materials. And we work in this closed space that we use only the uh, cotton which the farmers grow for us so we start with the seeds we distribute the seeds which are already coded. we get back the fiber and from then we never lose track again so this is how it works
4: um thank you so much marion thank please you. give it up again for marion mm-hmm.
1: welcome hasna kurda well first of all A warm welcome to you, to our fifth edition. So, I mean, Hasna has uh, such a wide um, representation already in the industry, even though you just kind of started. And, uh, well, we today we're going to look into regenerative culture, opening up the morning session where we talk all about culture. And now we're looking towards the future of equity and ecology. And you have started, um, well, into the industry with, with, I think, maybe a, a different cultural background. I think this is something really interesting to start looking into um, to make people understand how culture influences business at the end of the day also. So um, I thought, because in our pre-preparation call we were talking about like so many different things, um, maybe we can start our dialogue with looking into your upbringing in Tunisia and how this has influenced your career really. and well, shaped your ambitions, I guess.
3: Yeah, totally. So I grew up in Tunisia, a country in North Africa, and my family come from a remote island in the south, very disconnected from the mainland. And as it's a developing country, uh, lots of the infrastructure didn't enable really uh, an efficient um, resource management. So you ha- they had to do with everything that was available in the island and made sure that Uh, They were optimizing from a season to another, and so over the years and uh, generations, they developed several uh, technologies to make sure that Uh, they were able to sustain their living uh, through the limited resources they had available, not just for them as a family, but also for the community. And also uh, they ended up exporting that technology to, uh, to the full Mediterranean area. And also my father introduced in the 70s, 80s, the first energy saving devices and electronics in the country. So really that... Um, culture of resource efficiency and value to things that are inf- uh, that are finite actually was really anchored in uh, in my upbringing and also uh, of course my grandmother uh, just I am the younger last to youngest um, to a family of Uh, eight brothers and sisters and so she uh, and I lived with my grandparents and she wanted really to uh, instill in our uh, um, education everything that was related to fibers to materials especially um, especially natural fibers and so I grew up learning about uh, cotton but also wool and she was very kind of hands-on on on it so I had to manually uh, Uh, sort fibers when I was younger and uh, and something really uh, at the uh, at the source of CV of the inspiration is also a carpet that she commissioned back in the 70s made of all the clothing she, her uh, children, uh, her grandchildren, ever wore, and uh, it's a ten, nine uh, meters long carpet made of all those natural fibers. It's 50 years old now, but my parents still use it. And the thinking behind it is that there is a life after life for garment, and it can be used for different purposes and different life cycles. So my parents are still using that carpet because in the summer it cools the room because it's made of cotton, it's a very natural fiber. But also in the, in the winter they put it under mattresses, and that helps extend the life of the mattress itself. So it's an infinite loop that was the inspiration um that led me to create Save Your wardrobe and moving to europe when i was 19 i was it was a culture shock for me because what i thought would be for every everybody was just very niche to how uh, i grew up and uh and i was really surprised to see how people were engaging with their clothes as a one off buying them once for a party or something and this is, was 20 something years ago at the very rise of fast fashion and not even fast fashion as we know it today. It was slower fashion, but still uh, kind of a uh, higher frequency of purchases. Yeah.
1: Topman was still big then. Yes,
3: exactly. Top Topshop. Uh, it, yeah. um, it was also the year ASOS was founded. And ASOS was very slow back then compared to today. Uh, and yeah, so all of these kind of signals of the, the, the industry led me to think that what missi- what is absolutely missing from the fashion industry is uh, appreciating the, the, the few resources that we have, but also how technology can help uh, streamline that adoption of circularity. And Save Your Wardrobe is all about that.
1: Well I mean that's I think such an inspiring journey and and one can see how more like a a culture of care even is like maybe a baseline for for circularity and you can do things all kinds of things yourself at the end and uh, well and also how like cultural exchange and transcultural kind of exchange it's really important, and the, the, the different perspectives that you're bringing yeah. in.
3: I mean the fashion industry rel- relies a lot on the global south in the manufacturing, and unfortunately, at the at the moment, uh, with the speed of market and speed of production, we forget about those skilled people and yeah. uh, what they they the, the their indigenous kind of skills and know-how, yeah. and we tend to just ask them to produce at a higher speed and repeat. The the same processes again. And what we found, and to come back to the question of regeneration, is that uh, our ecosystem of tailors and uh, skilled craftspeople brings back that culture of regenerations because Unfortunately, as well, we kind of forgotten about how things could be repaired and mended and cared for or alteration to make it really uh, a good fit. And I feel like the answer comes from these family-owned businesses that have learned and uh, improved their skills over the decades.
1: Yeah, They're also often very agile. eh? The big corporates also have problems to adapt quickly quite often at the end of the day. They have maybe the financial means but not the agility actually yeah, so much.
3: Um, Exactly, uh. that's right. And this is actually a really nice way for me to talk about uh, partnerships we are doing with, uh, for example, Zalando, we've launched in uh, 2021 in October and uh, the purpose of this, uh, this partnership is to help them tap into circularity and extend the life of 50 million items uh, and we are able to do that through a digitalized booking platform that connects uh, the customers and anyone actually to, those, uh, ec- to this ecosystem of, uh, of aftercare people.
1: So let's explain Save Your Wardrobe a little bit more, because I must (laughs) say, I mean, when I in the last couple of years whenever I thought maybe there would be one startup idea that I have it was all around these kind of alteration tailors repair tailors because I learned at some point randomly that a city like Berlin still has around I think 3000 of them so a huge infrastructure a physical infrastructure that is not connected not really interacting with with each other and you are working on that so like please let's learn more about Save Your Wardrobe
3: so Save Your Wardrobe is a circular digital platform that helps brands and retailers, but also custom uh, consumers, tap into uh, the repair culture, the alteration culture, making making sure that items and clothing fit perfectly. And uh, and actually, Hannah uh, from Zalando is there, and she's been incredibly supportive uh, in making sure that the experience is uh, is very democratized, but and also accessible. Uh, what we've learned was that education was missing on how to care for our clothing, but also accessing to those uh, people like uh, aftercare services. And so Save Your Wardrobes uh, brings together a fragmented market on circularity. So on one hand, there are those uh, local family owned, often uh, um, outside of the digital world, and that got hit really strongly by the the COVID uh, in in knowledge of uh, repair and care and, and so on in their business and then uh, the other initiatives around uh, around circularity like Resell. And so Save Your Wardrobe uh, built this platform and we have a B2C arm that uh, is an app uh, available to download and, uh, and so the idea is to reflect on your purchases. What do you have in your wardrobe? We give you statistics, but also uh, actionable insights on making sure, on how to make sure that anything you own is uh, is there for 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 the long time, and divert as much as possible things from landfill. And then yes, so we work with brands and retailers. Zalando is one fabulous example. We also work with Hugo Boss, uh, This time is, it's an in-store experience where you can drop off any item, and Hugo Boss will offer uh, repair for free. So also this in is in Berlin or where? Yes, in Berlin. Don't ask me the name of the store I was I won't be able I guess to pronounce we can it that, Yes. So. <laughs> yes, so we we work with uh, Hugo Bossin's store uh, yeah the name is
1: unpronounceable for me. <laughs> Don't worry but so it works in store, physical, but also online yes, with exactly. a partner like Zalando. Absolutely,
3: yes, yeah, yeah. and uh, and yeah, it's really about making sure that brands and retailers embrace circularity, but also take responsibility on the items that they are sending to market. And often, uh, fast fashion brands are sending to ma- to market things that are not made in a, in the proper way, but yeah. are so easy to repair after yeah. all because they are made in a very cheap way it's
1: not rocket science yeah
3: it's not rocket science the way it's it's tailored if it's not actually tailored but the way it's made uh could be really quickly uh and actually what we've realized as well was after the items go through the hands of our of our partners they are in a better shape and they are much more sturdy so we help really extend the life cycle of garments and make sure that you enjoy them for more for longer time
1: amazing and um since we're coming to an end already of our short but lovely interview um do you see then do you see a change in consumption culture that because i mean this is i think one of these really interesting topics and questions you know, where will this be moving? I mean, if you look at the world population, obviously there's still millions of new consumers coming in different countries around the world. So less is more will not really work as a global solution. But I think still in our spheres here, we need to kind of be also uh, role models and find different ways how to consume. So do you see changes already? Can you, do you are you getting get data from consumers? Yeah,
3: we are getting data from consumers and more and more people are coming to us asking if they can send us Items from Canada, and so there is a big appetite in uh, in tackling these issues. Also, the other part is uh, the Economist, for example, released uh, their fire world ahead 2023, and one of the story was repairing the world and uh, it's a little bit of, uh, of a self-promotion here, but I was lucky to be invited and interviewed by them on how our technology and platform is enabling and streamlining uh, the repair culture and uh, aftercare. Um, I would actually think the opposite. I feel like the role model comes from countries that are developing countries yes. because they are so close to resource scar- scarcity They've. They know how from a season to another they couldn't tap into the same access as they they could be. So uh, and so another history about the way I grew up. There was. There used to be uh, an individual going from neighborhood to neighbor and getting, exchanging or buying secondhand items and then they bring it back home and they have these apprentices that will do the repair and care and then send them, sell them again through that itinerance. And I feel like these, the, the things from the past could also be, uh, we could look at those as an example on how to uh, shift the culture of, uh, yeah. of mindful, mindfulness.
1: Beautiful put and obviously you're very right. I think what I meant was, we should be a role medal over here to show you can go back in certain ways without kind of losing comfort but you know remembering good old things and making them part of a contemporary lifestyle yeah. and the inspiration I'm sure comes from all over the world because there's so many other Absolutely, kind of yes. cultures that show how yes. to deal and how to take care of yes. things much better than Absolutely. we do here. Yeah,
3: yeah. If you dig for it you'll find that everywhere there was a, a of, of, um, a will to make sure that we are mindful with uh, with the resources that uh, planet Earth is giving, and uh, and yeah, I'm really excited to see uh, where w- what's next for uh, 2023 in uh, in the repair uh, area.
1: Well, I think we will have a lot of things happening in 2023. Uh, 23 and with 2020-30 and with that i would say we have to leave the stage unfortunately to continue it was lovely having you so welcome for the next session a double interview today um yeah we were already introduced um it's we look now in the first conversation we looked more into cultural background, also touching points with consumption culture. And um, now we look more into work culture um, in many different aspects. And yeah, Celine Textiles I think is an example where. Obviously, a very different kind of work style is being lived every day, also because you work with so many craftspeople and we'll learn more about that in a moment. And uh, with B Corp, B Lab, obviously, there's an institution that gives the framework for how your own um, internal work organization can be done differently, how your organization can be more um, working towards a holistic sustainability concept, I would say, or even a regenerative one at the end. So, um, I would love to start with you, Selina, maybe you can first of all really explain what Selin Textiles does, or how does it work, um, and how this work really goes beyond the typical CSR, and and I would even say how it it makes you a citizen in your own community maybe in a way, a corporate citizen in your community, so yeah, how how do you work at Selin Textiles?
5: So uh, my name is Selena Pires. I thank you uh, for having me in Berlin. Uh, thank you, Max, for inviting uh, me to speak at this summit. So Celine Textiles is an organization that is actually 31 years old. It, uh founded by my mom. I'm the second generation uh, leader in the com- company. We are a traditional handloom company. And in essence, a social enterprise, that's what we are. So actually the whole idea of uh, corporate social responsibility doesn't really apply to us because as a social enterprise, we are actually living citizenship and corporate responsibility at the core of our operations. So everything we do is actually connected to the triple bottom line, people, planet and profit. We cannot do anything if it doesn't impact or consider the three P's. So this is a very important distinction to make. And Celine Textiles is a, a B2B textile brand uh, that is uh, manufacturing high quality, high value uh, hand-woven textiles that reach some of the biggest brand houses and designers of the world. That is actually the aspiration. And uh, maybe what is really special is that we have piloted uh, blockchain technology, uh, verified transparency to ensure that all the textiles coming out of our mills have verification on things like wage transparency, carbon footprint, etc. cetera. So, um, yeah. That's who I am
1: as an introduction. Yeah, great. Thanks so much. So, yeah, a lot of really traditional, um, also craft culture, but also working uh, culture, but combined with also modern technology in order to kind of organize it better and communicate it better. Annika, how is that at B Corp and B Lab? Um, Also, maybe you have to explain like these two entities a little bit. What is what? I think B Corp is known as some kind of certification scheme nowadays a little bit. But yeah, please enlighten us a bit. How does B Corp, B Lab work?
4: Yes. um, First of all, thanks for having me Um, again. I mean, we talked. Um, Yeah, happy to share a bit about our B Corp movement, as we call it, and uh, to go First, I will yeah explain a bit what B-Lab and B-Corp means. Um, B-Lab is a non-profit global network and organization that was founded back in 2006 in the US by a few business leaders back then who came together and who came to the conclusion and realization that the way we do business is really messed up. Um, It does only benefit a few. There is a lot of inequality. Um, It's not getting us anywhere. It's not sustainable in the long run. So what they did, they came together and uh, shared knowledge, joined forces and came up with a new framework and a suggestion to businesses on how to balance uh, making profit with at the same time creating benefit for people and the planet as you said the triple bottom line and so what they did they put the framework out there they created tools they created an assessment for businesses to use um, and to make that movement grow they were sure they had to inspire businesses to use it um, they had to get businesses on board um create um some sort of um momentum um, And use the power of the many and make a, how do you say, like a proof story um, that businesses can look at and be like inspired to also change the way they structure their corporate governance. Um, So, what is what B-Lab is known for is the B Corp certification. To come back to that, um, we certify businesses that meet high standards and um, that actually showcase that they create positive impact on different areas uh, like creating positive impact for employees for the customers for communities where they're based in with whom they work supply chain um, and we um yeah hand out certifications for those that are leading the way it means uh, in order to get a certification um, you do not only have to show what you're already doing it's not a stamp that you're perfect, but it is about joining a movement of improvement. Um, it's about commitment. Um, and I think this is also going beyond CSR as like, it's not just a certificate. Um, it's not just showing what businesses are doing right now, but it is a commitment in terms of that businesses have to change their actual um, corporate legacy or like their their legal documents and embedded in their mission moving forward that they will consider making profits in the same way as they consider creating a benefit for the people and the planet that they touch upon. So it's a shift from like shareholder primacy towards a stakeholder governance that benefits all. I think that really distinguishes us and uh, goes beyond CSR.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. I think it's a it's it's a very holistic concept i mean in germany we have something uh i'm not sure but maybe for the audience here like a uh, gemeinwohl that is also like a, um, goes into a very similar direction um but yeah and and how i think also for you guys like at the end communities play a really important role eh? how because you also call it a movement so how do you deal with that and and is that already part of a different culture of doing business, of including businesses?
4: Uh, I would say the community we have um, made up of mostly the B Corps that we have um, is the heart of the movement. Um, As I said, it's the power of the many that make a point um, and that prove that it is working, that uh, these businesses run in a stable way, they have long-term goals, they really uh, move into the right direction and I think what is so powerful is that I mean, we as B-Lab, we provide all the tools, the networking sessions or like the events where people can connect and we give them everything they need to change or um, educate each other, change opinions, um, inspire each other, but also take on responsibility to tackle more. And as I said, it's about improving. Um, It's not about... Uh, looking at the status quo, but B Corps have to recertify every three years. The standards that we have, they evolve over time. We are now coming up with the sixth edition next year of the standards and, um, yeah, giving the conditions in the outside world and how we all develop, they become harder and harder. So to maintain the B Corps certification and stay in the community is also um, necessary to improve. So we are all in a way, dependent on each other, and I think my role also as a community manager for uh, for B-Lab Germany, um, what inspires me the most is to see that energy that all the people bring in um, who are in the b Corp movement and uh, the willingness to collaborate other than just being competitive And we have coalitions that are found. Um, One example is a Beauty coalition uh, celebrated one year this January um, of different uh, brands in the beauty industry that, just to name a few, are like Rituals, The Body Shop, Valeda, Dr. Bronner's. I think people know these brands. We have big brands in our community. Um, And they actually really tackle industry issues and want to change how some beauty standards, uh, yeah, should be tackled in the way that they think. And I mean, as you are all um, probably interested also, I mean, we have a lot of brands also from the fashion industry in the textile industry. And we see a big stream of companies from the fashion industry coming together at this stage because there is a huge momentum in terms of that we have now, we have Gani on board, we have Chloé, which are huge brands, Uh, of course, like forerunners, like Patagonia, um, many more. I think there are like 300 different brands in the fashion industry already. And what they do is they come together and share what they've been doing in all sorts of areas and um, really tackle problems together and yeah.
1: So we can, start at least for germany start now to build up the b corp network in fashion um, actually today later today we have also a representative who's building up um, a, a big fashion network already from italy uh, martina who will be in the afternoon sessions and Gino um, kilo, and kilo is also um, <laughs> going to be here in the afternoon one of the first german yeah. fashion brands yeah. that is b corp certified so yeah we can look into that a little bit more um, but to use also like um the short time we still have in our interview, um, and to kind of reconnect with the topic of our conference and and this uh, morning sessions, regenerative culture. Um, Selina, you also work and and, um, you still work in something that is called the positive impact consultancy. So I wondered, like, how do you in this context kind of frame something like a regenerative corporate citizenship or what does regenerative mean for you in in your work and your experience with your consultancy also
5: yeah i mean um, max i'll answer that by sharing an example so with covid uh, in 2020 i think there was a ex- a real life situation where we had to choose to be regenerative choose to build back better and uh, this came when our entire community of hand weavers. We have separate verticals of the business, which a part of it has handmade toys that go to a separate market. But the hand weavers actually were at risk because it was very much connected to the tourism sector in Sri Lanka. At this moment, we had to choose, do we continue to uh, kind of... Uh, grow them and invest in a business or a vertical that was going to... uh, People say handlooms in Sri Lanka is dying. No young person is uh, coming on board. So why? It doesn't make any business sense to keep investing in this, right? So this is the point where I actually invested in selling textiles and said, no, we are not just going to... Take Sri Lanka's handloom to the world but we are also going to do it in a way that dignity is preserved and that's where the technology came in so in essence what I'm trying to say is at every business decision or every decision that we make as a citizen of this world, we need to not just do something that has the status quo but that allows us to be better It allows us to be regenerative and it's not easy. You have to go out of your way. You have to fight the kind of hill to say, as so many people who said, let the handloom industry go. They're old, they're dying. Sri Lanka's handloom has no value. India's better. Bangladesh is better. You know, you. I, I don't think any of you have heard of Sri Lankan craft. <laughs> so well, I guess I take some
1: hopefully. But... It's
5: moment to regenerate. <laughs> but it's... Yeah. this example is exactly what i'm trying to say you take crisis and you build back better right and that is for me responsibility we have to be regenerative
1: yeah and maybe also as we heard already in the morning I mean, in the first session with um, hasna um yeah also the, the question like looking back into technologies that might be more old school or even ancient, but might also give a really new perspective and and inspiration for something, uh, how to do it now, but better and embedded in the contemporary kind of scenery. Um, Great. And thank you for that example. And now I would like to have a moment of Q&A still. I think we have maybe a few seconds. We went a bit over already, but is there a question in the audience?
0: Uh, Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, my question goes to Annika. Um, I would very much be interested in um, how many B Corp um, companies there are in Germany yet. So German companies and how much do they have to pay for being certified? <laughs>
4: um, we have, I think, 68 uh, B Corps that are headquartered in Germany at this moment. Um Nevertheless, we have, I think, over 450 companies actually operating in Germany, and Germany is a big market for many companies. Um, Yeah, but if they have their headquarter in Switzerland or Benelux, we don't count them as German B Corps, which is a bit irritating sometimes, but the community consists of everyone. And... What they need to pay depends on company size, um, but it's actually on our website. <laughs> so I would suggest to, to look in that. Yeah. Okay, thank you.
0: Uh, hi, well, thank you very much for the, uh, the talks. Uh, this is a question also for uh, Anika, uh, because uh, I have read a report in the Changing Markets about Danone, and uh, it's highlighted as some of the most uh, bigger polluters. Uh, and it's a big corp. So I would like to explain a little bit more ca- how can it happen. Okay, thank you very much.
4: Um, yes, uh, of course, uh, I, I knew that this question could come up. Um, I think something that I want to highlight here, as I said, it's not a certificate for companies that are already doing everything perfect i think there's not such company that does everything in a perfect way but it is as i said it's a commitment to in all future decisions and improvements that a company does or like changes that they will consider all three parts and they're also accountable for doing that and um danone has made big shifts from uh, when they started to become a so-called benefit corporation, it's actually a legal um, form of entity or a corporation in France. Um, so they actually they're obliged to now everything that they do um, do it under a purpose, and uh, this also lasts through like CEO changes or crisis or whatever. People might say it's in their mission. Um, the CEO, like the people who run the business, they have to take these three parts into account. Um, but of course, yes, um, I see it the same way. I, I am also against like uh, plastic bottles, if you say it in that way. Um, not going not gonna to say that it is a good practice. Um, and it's definitely something where they need to work on. But I think now they really are. At a stage where they can be held accountable for making changes uh, yeah I, I don't I hope that answers uh, the question a little bit
1: I think the point of accountability is the important part there really yes and it 's
4: improving right it 's a commitment to improve um, it 's not about being perfect and then lean back it 's a constant evolvement over time, and we learn while we go, and uh, we need to collaborate and we need to. Um, For us as a movement, it's important to take also bigger companies on board because that's the only way how we can shift business or the system we do business in. And, yeah.
0: (laughs) That was really great listening to the speakers and one quote just stuck in my head. It was from Hasna Koda and she said, the role model comes from countries which are developing countries. And I think that's so true while listening to the three uh, different entities and speakers in our three sessions. What do you think, Max?
1: Yeah. And I think this is really underrepresented at the moment. And yeah, I think I was so happy to have her and to see that with um, founders like Hasna, we're getting a total new inspiration and a new perspective into the industry. And I think this is gold for, for the future really.
0: It's also about accountability and there's no accountability without transparency. And Marion is also talking a lot about transparency. And transparency will be our next topic in our next episode when we have Ask Retraced and the ID Factory talking about the future of trade, transparency and value chains.
1: And Ask will actually join us live in the studio. Really looking forward to that.
0: Absolutely. And learning a lot about like the complications also in terms of transparency and what it actually brings to you and your consumers. And if you enjoyed what you've been hearing from Anika, you can check out B Lab's new podcast. It is called Forces for Good. And it is linked in our show notes. So check it out. And please don't forget to follow us on Instagram on 202030summit and on our website, 202030summit.com.